Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left Weekly. Um, at, in the studio today, we have Jacob and Lalita, myself, and we've got a jam-packed program as usual. Mm. We have three interviews, and uh, we'll talk more about it as we go on. But first, we want to pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land um, and acknowledge the um, Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation. Um, and we respect the elders uh, from the past and the future generation, they are um, waiting to um, take on the leaderships of the community. The, the land was never ceded, eh? It's mm. all stolen. So, now, what a week, Jacob. Uh, I guess it has, um, though <laughs> not, I don't think really much has been happening in much of major political events in the news. Uh like, you know, I don't think there has been any real, you know, crazy things related to the Turnbull like government. Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> I mean, the People Barnaby Joyce thing was really the kind of dominant thing in the media for like, you know, a week. But, you know, I'm not really a part. I think the only new development that I've, um, that I've recently heard, which I think I communicated last week, was that he is the subject of a sexual harassment claim. Yeah, we'll, we'll move on. But the things that have happened, um, you know... Um, it's it's appalling what happened in Parliament yesterday when um, Bishop um, attacked the women in in uh, no no that, that was office. Cash Cash Michaela Michaela Cash sorry Michaela Cash got the wrong name there mm. they both they're very so similar in persona I just get confused between them mm. and it's appalling that this 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 person would just before International Women's Day would attack women uh, for. In the way she did in in Parliament under mm. parliamentary privilege, it's just, I, I words fail me. How how do I guess you, you you shouldn't be too disappointed given that she's a member of the Liberal Party. Yeah. They're not exactly the most progressive party in the world, but it's good that she's apologised. Um, it just shows the 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 character and and the the in, intellect pool of that political party that's running this country. Fifty percent of the the population is not respected. It's yep. a bit hard to talk to you when you're sitting on the side. Yep. <laughs> but anyway, yep. Um, but other than that, of course, the U.S. is um, so you know on the news every day. I see yep. Trump on the news every day. You know, since the shooting, he seems to have moved a little bit. But I wonder how much of it he'll really implement. Uh, at the moment, he's saying, oh, we'll have to restrict uh, the people who are able to buy a gun. We'll, we'll do some checks before we sell it to them. He's mm. saying all those words, but exactly what he will do remains to be seen. Mm. Um, and I saw in the papers this morning, they're going to relax gun laws in Australia. So it's interesting how the reaction is the opposite of what you expect. Yeah. But the good thing is the young people in America are on the move. How far they all go remains to be seen. 
But what do you think? You're the young person. Well, I think um, it's quite. I think the it's quite significant the mobilizations that have happened um, for gun law reform in the United States states, especially. Um, especially as we, you know, spoke about at last week on our program, um, the high school walkouts. Mm. Um, there's this particular young woman who's becoming kind of like a bit of a celebrity in the sense that she's becoming the face of the campaign. Fantales, yes. Um, and so I think there's all, I think all that stuff, you know, sounds quite exciting, especially in the context of politics in the US. Mm. Um, and as I kind of said last Friday, let's hope that Chanel gets, you know, um, project, um, pushed into sort of more, um, you know, more um, in the direction of, you know, raising the question of not just, you know, demilitarizing society or de- but demilitarizing the police. Yeah. And there's also the question of arming the people. Amendment 2, you know, in the Constitution, not amendment, what do you call them? Um, the second clause, no, the, yeah, it is amendment. Yeah. Um, they always hide behind it. Mm. Um, but that was made at different times for different reasons. So it's got nothing to do with uh, what they're carrying on about today. Uh, I mean, if you angered somebody, you can just pull out a gun. It's just that's not what it was about. Yeah, it's it's a, there's a history to these things, and we don't have time to go into into yeah. it. Here yeah, today. something I wanted to go on to is actually, um, you know, talk about a bit about pop culture actually, because the. Black Panther movie um, oh, yeah. came out <laughs> recently, um, and I finally got around to seeing it um, this Wednesday. Well done. And I, I actually think, you know, the film is actually quite, it's, you know, release is actually quite politically significant in terms of the fact that, you know, uh, it's the um, only superhero movie that is like literally where black people play a dominant role um, mm. and in terms of representation. It's all black cast except for two white people. One is a friend, one is the enemy, and that's it. Yes. And they, 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 in some quarters they're called the token whites. It's quite yeah, funny. Yes. <laughs> so the, um, they, ba- they ba- in fact, yeah, white people play such a minimum role in the movie. Yeah. It's quite interesting. But I think just commenting on the politics of the film a bit, I mean, the, the politics have its own limitations in an interesting way. But what I found interesting is I probably sympathise a bit more with the villain of the film than, than necessarily the protagonist. You're fired. <laughs> um, mainly because what the villain kind of echoes is he kind of clearly he's echoing the kind of militant sort of black activists of the 1960s to 19... or, or Malcolm X in particular, um, in a sense that his kind of main goal is he wants to see the liberation of black nations. Um, although oh, you mean the black villain, not the white villain? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, Killmonger. Killmonger. Two villains, yes. Killmonger. Um, or he is the villain, the main antagonist oh, yeah, in the film. Um, you know, but I think his role in the film is quite interesting. Um because really, the the main protagonist, um, T'Challa, I think is his name. You know, has it's sort of the very typical liberal American kind of thing, where he is, you know, the peaceful, non-confrontational, and you know, how you change society is not through challenging systems of power, but actually accommodating to it. Um, whereas Killmonger, actually, you know, despite the fact his methods are quite questionable, um, and so was Malcolm X's at the time. Um, he is actually for, you know, militant kind of black struggle and self-determination. So that's sort of the interesting kind of political contrast. Although clearly another angle you can look at it is, um, is Killmonger was also actually also supposed to represent, you know, uh, fundamentalists because he is essentially 
framed as a terrorist in the film, um, as you know, uh, extreme. He's framed as like you know a terror extremist, in a, um, basically, but extremist that is the product of. You know, modern USA. Well, he was modern USA. And, and well, military trained and all that. Well, also he's also a product of the kind of failures of the African nation Wakanda, as it's portrayed in the film. That's sort of what the message, one of the kind of messages I got of the film, because of the fact that you know they never took an interest in you know liberating the other African nations. Because Wakanda, just for listeners' background, is basically the fictional African nation, which is like has never been colonised. Um, it has incredible alien technology. Um, and so it has, it has more advanced technology than any kind of society on Earth. Yep. Um, but it's a, but what makes it significant is it's all black nations. So it's creating this kind of contrast. And a lot of young people in it. And the, the thing is, you know, the, the politics of it is, extends beyond that too because – it's a feudal system, mm. and they determine the king uh, by combat, one-to-one combat. Um, they also have males who inherit the throne, not females. And females remain in a subservient role, even though they were the like the black cats, you know, guarding the king mm. and so on. There's a prominent and a very strong role for women, but... It's still subservient to males, you know. Mm. So you 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 have that that um, uh, that submission, you know, the oppression of women still as a feature of it. Mm. Um, at the same time, they they gave they give women women through the authority of the man. He women allowed like the, the king's sister was the the main person who was mm. the expert in technology and stuff like that. So there's a lot of – there's a big mix of different types of politics in there, but also the fact that in the end, as you say, even though, you know, um, the king um, was a hero and, and – and what, Bill Monger was the – Killmonger was the – Killmonger was the um, villain um, – the king then takes up his notion and he, he did offer him, you know, we can solve this differently. We don't, you don't have to die in mm-hmm. combat. So there was a compromise at the end, which is interesting. But anyway, but in, in, in uh, it's, it's very entertaining. It's really, really, I found it really entertaining. Mm-hmm. And people shouldn't forget this, this, this movie is based on a comic that was released in 1966. Mm-hmm. So it's not new. Um, it's part of this uh, Shield uh, movies that oh, it's, Marvel, uh, Mar- movie, it's Marvel, Marvel It's Marvel. It's part of the Marvel line. Marvel movies and then the series of movies. And this movie was released uh, as a uh, precursor to a very large mega blockbuster coming with all the yeah. other Shield well, uh, characters. Well, of the Avengers, really. Yeah. Um, th- just one significant thing I think about Black Panther is one thing that people don't know is. The Black Panthers, the political party, were actually was actually people named after. The, a lot was of actually, people know that was actually Jacob. named after the comic book, um, the Black Panther that this film is based on. And I guess one kind of point I want to make is I think you know they are. If you really critique the film, there are limitations politically. Of course, of course. Um, it doesn't really go beyond the sort of liberal Hollywood political framework. But in terms of representation, I think this film really represents a um, a breakthrough and and it really means a lot to the African American community. Like I've seen videos of, you know, um, a teacher announces to a, you know, to a class of African American students that, you know, we're going to go, we're going to, 
take a school excursion to see Black Panthers and the amount of excitement from, you mm. know, all the children in the room is just, you know, something to pull. It really does, I think, to a lot of, you know, African-American children and teenagers and, and to the whole community, this film actually represents something real. And yeah. um, despite cl- its clear limitations politically, I think, you know, this is a, a film that will be celebrated um, culturally um, and for me personally, as a bit of a film buff, I do think the film doesn't really... I think it's good, but it doesn't really go beyond the kind of typical Marvel kind of cle yeah, sort of formula. Yeah, expected, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I, I was entertained. I was engaged. So I think if you want to have a nice entertainment with, with um, a bit of excitement added, that's the movie to go and see. So let's um, play a, a break um, while you get the first interview online. Now, um, of course, listeners would know International Women's Day is uh, next week on the 8th of March. Um, So we will play a community announcement in relation to that. And welcome back to Green Left Weekly Radio on 3CR 855 AM dial, of course. And uh, don't forget, you know, we are looking for subscribers. Um, You heard that... um, wonderful week that's coming up in, in on International Women's Day, a full day of women's programs. And next gonna be next week is gonna be exciting because of that. So please subscribe. Um if you enjoy the program we present and the a, a variety of programs that three C R presents, we need the support and the support has to be um in the form of subscribers who when subscribing, will become owners of the station. You have a say in how the station runs and the decisions that are made on behalf of uh, the radio station as a whole. And, of course, you can participate in all the decision-making processes. So get your pen out and fill out a subscription form or come into the office in, in um, Collingwood and Smith Street and pop into the office and subscribe and of course online it's always online available if you want to subscribe so we have on the line our first interview i'll introduce him okay go so we have um tony iltis um who is a regular writer for green left weekly um the paper our station is connected well our program is connected to um and he has he's quite well he's quite known in the paper for writing regularly on the middle east um specifically focusing on what's happening in northern syria or even on syria in general um so we have him on the line today to talk about you know the current situation that's currently unfolding um in afrin uh because at this point um on january the 20th um turkey um, invade, um, started its invasion of Afrin. Um, Afrin is, I think, part of the, the Kurdish-occupied areas in northern Syria where, you know, they are try, you know, trying to build a more democratic, more feminist, ecological kind of society. Um, so Tony is going to talk to us about, you know, what's the situation happening, what's happening there, and, you know, a bit more about the Rojava revolution. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Welcome to 3CR and thank you very much for being up so early to talk to us. So, Tony, what's happening? Because we've heard about Afrin being invaded several times in the media, but we don't get the uh, alternative point of view. So give us a bit of a snapshot of what you, you think is happening there. Um, well, what's happening there is since... Uh, I mean, when the Turkish invasion was launched on January 20, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the 
Turkish president was, you know, very much saying that his forces would crush the, um, basically, you know, invade it and crush the forces defending it within a few weeks. That hadn't happened. Um, but what's been happening is a lot of civilians have been killed because without being able to make much military advances, like they've only actually advanced about five kilometers into Afrin, they've instead resorted to doing a lot of bombing and they've you know, been targeting civilian infrastructure, homes, schools, um, medical facilities, that sort of thing. Um, a, a bit of context is that I think there's about a third of the country is now under the control of the Syrian Democratic Forces and the political system they support, which is what they call democratic autonomy. And most of that area is like a contiguous geographical area of land, but Afrin is separate from the rest um, because a couple of years earlier, in 2016, um, Turkish forces moved into a small strip of land around the towns of Jerabalus and Alba and separate, and which at the time had been occupied by ISIS. And the official story was that, you know, Turkey went in there to fight ISIS, but in fact, I mean, Turkey had previously been giving material and logistical support to ISIS, and it was more of a handover than an actual military conflict, but that then has meant that Afrin has been separated from the rest of the Rojava North Syria Federation, which made it an easier target. And, you know, probably about, I think, somewhere between two and 300 civilians have been killed. Um, the Turkish forces went in with Syrian auxiliaries, um, some of which are sort of direct mercenaries recruited from Syrian refugees in Turkey and, you know, offered what would be, you know, quite a high wage compared to what those people would be able to get doing anything else. Other forces were part of Turkish-backed militias had been fighting against the Assad regime. And essentially there was an under-the-table deal done between Turkey and Russia, which meant that in exchange for um, Turkey stopping backing some of the groups who were resisting the Assad regime or persuading them to stop resisting Assad and move and moving to, to attack Afrin. And that's made it easier for the regime to attack Idlib and eastern Ghouta, which is being bombed by the regime of the Russians and suffering a terribly high civilian casualties. No, it's like awful. Much yeah. higher in Afrin. So it's kind of like you know, a, a deal being done between the government. Now, uh, the, the Turkish um, forces have also basically used these Syrian auxiliaries of spare ground troops, and they've suffered very high casualties. Um, like, I think something in the region of eight to 900 people in the invading forces might have been killed. Now, the overwhelming majority of those would be Syrian, not Turkish troops. No, hang on, hang on, hang on. I just want to make, get this clear. So, Russia made a deal with um, um, Turkey so that uh, Turkey wouldn't back the opposing forces in Syria. 
Um, yeah. Okay. So how does that then enable um, a Turkey to attack Afrin? Well, Afrin had been... The airspace of Afrin was under the control of Russia. Like, I mean, there's been this informal agreement in Syria for the last few years where the airspace is basically divided between that controlled by America and that controlled by Russia. And the Americans um, West have also basically given a green light to Turkey, which is a NATO member, mm. and part of their excuses that oh, that's in the Russian you know, area of influence. And Russia had peacekeeping forces in in there before, which was a deterrent to Turkey moving in, but they withdrew those forces. Like they'd actually said to the um, authorities in Afrin that they would keep their forces there to stop a Turkish invasion. Was it, Sorry, was, was Afrin also the area where the Americans um, apparently supported the Kurds to attack ISIS? Um, no, in the rest of, um, like in, like in, like sort of, in most of the rest of the um, North Syria Federation and Rojava, the Americans had been there, you know, giving air support to the Syrian Democratic Forces fighting ISIS, but in Afrin they hadn't been. And so the Americans have said, no, Afrin's not part of, you know, that, that's not part of our area of interest. The Russian peacekeeping forces withdrew after they had said to the North Syria Federation that we'll keep our forces there and stop a Turkish invasion if you hand over control to the Assad regime. The democratic self-administration said, no, we're not handing over the territory to the Assad regime. And then the Russian peacekeepers withdrew. And then just the day before the Turkish forces attacked, Mm. there's been a lot of, Mm. as is always the case in Syria, a lot of sort of under-the-table dealings between the various global and regional outside powers who have been interfering there. Yeah, I just want to ask you a question, Tony. This might be going a bit backwards um, a bit, um, but kind of just for um, the sake of the listeners, I just wanted to ask, you know, Give a bit of a political context for you know why why Turkey is in raiding Afrin. Um, you know what is what kind of what is kind of background for you know why the Tur- um, why everything that the Kurds are doing in northern Syria um, represents a threat to Turkey, um, especially in light of you know the context of how Turkey has historically treated um, the Kurds. Yeah, that's very interesting question, because, I mean, initially at the beginning of the Syrian civil war, um, the Turkish um, policies was very much based on the idea that Turkey could take advantage of Assad either, you know, fault, you know, being kicked out of office or, you know, losing territory and that, you know, forces much more um, close to Turkey could take over. But then as it emerged, in, during the conflict after during the conflict after the uh, uprisings in northern Syria in 2012, initially that was just in these free or well, then isolated um, towns of Afrin, Kobani, and then the area known as Jazeera, which includes the towns of Kamlishke and Hesekke. Um, 
they, I mean, the forces who were behind the Rojava revolution are ideologically close to the Kurdistan Workers' Party who have been resisting the Turkish um, forces in Turkish Kurdistan. Like Kurdistan's divided between Turkey, Syria, Iran and Iraq. And since about... 1999, 2000, um, <clears throat> the, like, they basically, the Kurdistan Workers' Party um, gave up the idea of having a separate Kurdish nation-state because they saw nation-states as being part of the problem and instead have adopted this policy of democratic confederalism, which means trying to have very democratic local self-rule uh, that would exist within the existing borders. So, you know, there's the ideological link between the two. And then in Rojava, because of the civil war, they've actually been able to um, basically take it further than, I mean, in, in any other part of Kurdistan. And so it sets what's a very dangerous example. I mean, the other side of this context is that the Turkish state has always been, since it was established in the 1920s, very ethno-nationalist, whereas democratic confederalism is a kind of anti-nationalist ideology which is based on local self-rule and complete equality between all different communities. And one of the things which is very striking in the areas of Rojava and North Syria is you see all public signs and things are all in multiple languages. Mm. And so it's you know very much based on equality between nationalities, and it's also very much based on grassroots local democracy. Mm. Whereas the Turkish state is very much based on ethno-nationalism, and it's also very much based on sort of top-down rule. And Erdogan has you know got increasingly authoritarian over the years. So I mean it's kind of like the threat of a good example. And I mean the Turkish. Propaganda makes much of the links between the PKK and the forces in Rojava and Northern yeah, Syria. Yeah, of course, yes. But, I mean, those links are ideological, like there's, you know, a definite ideological affinity, mm. but they're organisationally quite separate. That was part of what happened when the PKK adopted democratic, democratic confederalism. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, sorry, sorry, Tony, just... Just to, um, we're about to be running out of time, but I just wanted to address the current issue that's very much in the media. What is this about Ghouta? Why why are they attacking Ghouta so much? It's all tied up in the in, in the region, and it's it's horrible to see this this uh, massacre going on. So give us a bit of insight about what the real situation is and what what's the politics of it. Well, I, I think it's the other side of its deal between. Turkish state and, and, and Russia, Russia. Mm. and basically you know it's, it's meant that you know the Russia on behalf of the regime is trying to mop up those areas under rebel control and you know that's been facilitated by um, you know t Turkey and undermining you know those forces who keep on fighting Assad and trying to get them instead to move to Africa and to attack the North Syria um, 
um, North Syria Democratic Federation. And I mean, I think that's why these attacks are happening at the same time. I mean, the other part of the context is that the Syrian state, the regime of Assad, is very, very weak and is basically dependent on foreign forces. So, you know, the massive Russian and Syrian air force air bombardments is very much, you know, because of the inability of Syrian army ground troops to achieve very much militarily. I think most of the bombing in eastern Ghouta has been done by the regime, not by Russia. And they have one of their tactics is the use of, you know, barrel bombs, which Mm. are very crude weapons, like barrels of explosives being thrown out of helicopters, which are very indiscriminate, so that, you know, leads to very high civilian casualties. And I mean, also, it's in a context where Eastern Ghouta has been under siege for many years, so it's, you know, already in a weakened state. Um, I mean, the whole Syrian war has been, you know, this rather ugly situation of a very aggressive regime, Mm. then with the forces fighting against it, uh, often also quite, I mean, yeah, they range from, you know, various independent groups through to ISIS, although ISIS are no longer such a big factor there, but, you know, a lot of the forces fighting the regime, they're also not very democratic and you know so it's become and then all the outside foot outside global and regional powers interfering so it's become you know very much uh, you know just this very confused and complicated multi-sided war but also mm. incredibly violent and i mean i think there's sort of a significance of not just afrin but the whole of the north syria federation is with its emphasis on grassroots democratic rule it actually and because of its you know non not no, ethnic quality and also religiously very secular you know and being you know very much for equality between religions mm. means that it's actually the only yeah. thing which offers any alternative any solution yeah. Yeah. I just want to guess. I want to last question. I want to ask is what has been kind of like the international kind of response to Turkey's invasion of Afrin? Um, well, from the West, the response has been pretty much looking the other way, mm. and so you've had you know some expressions of concern. You've had some expressions of you know uh, we hope the Turkish forces minimise civilian casualties. But, you know, nothing concrete. And I mean, I think the important thing to understand here is that Turkey is a NATO member. Turkey is Western armed. Both Britain and France have signed um, stills with Turkey in recent weeks. Um, I think in the case of Britain, it might have even been after the African invasion started. And, you know, most of the tanks and heavy weapons being used German, who's also got ongoing military supply to Turkey, so does Israel, actually. Mm. So, but I mean, if Turkey's a NATO member, if the West said, no, we don't want you to come in here, there's no way that they would. And so, you know, even though the West isn't officially backing this invasion, they've very much done nothing to stop it, whereas it would be very easy to stop it, given that, you know, Turkey 
It's a mindless violence, you know. It's is appalling and nauseating to watch and listen to. And, and I, I really um, feel for the the people there. Surely, I mean, we in the left have to do something about it. And there's a demonstration coming up. We'll announce later on um, in relation to all the stuff. Um, so thank you so much, Tony. That was um, a little bit clearer, um, trying to understand this whole mess that's going on in the Middle East. And uh, all I can say is the weapon dealers are having a field day. Yeah, anyway. good news for weapons dealers. Absolutely. Okay. Else. Okay. Thanks. Have a good day, Tony. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, that's um, IWD reminder for everybody. Exciting day of the year, and certainly a year for uh, women. Um, all the issues around Me Too campaign and so on coming up. So. Uh, I'd love to see you joining some sort of activity around on the day. And welcome back to 3CR. And more news. Um, uh, and uh, I was going to call you Andrew for some reason, <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I, I just wanted to talk about this article that's in the latest Green Left Weekly. It's um, in the international section about, you know, it's a bit of an analysis. Um, just for context, this is about South African politics. Um and just recently, um, Jacob Zuma, who is the current president of um, South Africa and also part of the current ruling party, um, the, AN, um, the ANC, um, has been replaced by uh, a new president um, coming from a congress um, called Cyril um, Ramaphosa. And um, this is a bit of an interesting kind of analysis on what his kind of presidency means um, for South Africa. Because just for a bit of political context, the ANC have, you know, despite, you know, the glory old, good old days of Nelson Mandela being part of that party and so on, they really have, you know, post-apartheid have actually completely sold out to neoliberalism. And, you know, Ramaphosa is actually almost in this kind of political analysis here in this article, almost represents kind of that kind of contradiction because, interesting enough, Ramaphosa has a real, you know, contradictory history. And, you know, one of the interesting things is he was the General Secretary of the National Union of Mine Workers, which is one of the most militant unions in South Africa and probably the largest. And he played, he was a secretary during the pre-apartheid period and, you know, played a really strong and militant and progressive role in, you know, um, um, when playing a, gu- a role of the guiding hand between the nation's transition from apartheid to democracy in the early 1990s. Um, he also helped, you know, as it's noted here, negotiate one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. And he obviously... Based on this, he was hailed as a, revolu- a radical revolutionary and a man of principle. Um, but of course, um, unfortunately, Ramaphosa, you know, post-apartheid represents one of those kind of beneficiaries of the of the post-apartheid sort of, you know, South African black economic empowering, which meant, you know, that to redistribute um, the immense wealth accumulated by the white elite really went no further. And you can kind of see this in post-apartheid South Africa. What really happened, I mean, it's great that apartheid was was taken down, but what they didn't completely actually eliminate the inequality in the system. They basically, what they just did was transfer some more, some of the massive wealth to, to black elites instead. And of course, the majority of South Africans still remain poor. <laughs> black aristocracy. Um, and it's interesting, um, I think, 
right, um, just go, this is not noted in the article, but there has been, you know, a motion to redistribute the land, um, to seize the land from some white-owning lands to the blacks. And, of course, I mean, that sounds good on the onset, but at the same time, in the context of where South African politics is at, what it, what that policy could just mean is basically just more transfer of power without actually addressing the fundamental economic problems of South Africa. And, in fact, inequality will still be be high because it's still a capitalist system, um, but they'll just, you know transfer some of the lands to black elites instead. So there's lots happening, I think, in, in South African politics, and it's still, you know, it's, there's still a lot of political struggle happening there, but, you know, but the inequality is still high. And this president, as this new president, really doesn't probably represents more the same, more or less. Um, yeah. And there's, got, a, there's a party, and I forget the exact name of it, but it's got democracy. It's a democracy action party or something. They've been fighting the ANC for some time now. And we interviewed him some, I think, a couple of years ago on this program mm-hmm. um, about, you know, the the rise of democracy among the people who want to fight back against the so-called the black aristocracy. So we need to look up as to what's happening with that. Um, mm. Well, it's, it's, um, I think the, one of the, just a bit of a comment on the state of the South African left. One of the issues with the South African left is one of the the more radical parties, the South American Commun- South African Communist Party, were are completely. You know, it's sort of like the relationship between a lot of communist parties and the Labour Party in the Western world. Basically, they're unwilling to challenge the ANC hegemony. Yeah. Um, they're completely soft on, actually, despite the fact that there is actually a growing militant social movements in South Africa that do want that are for independence from the ruling ANC. So, mm. yeah. Yep. Okay, moving on to some um, local news, which is actually um, timely because of the Batman elections. There's a big discussion about uh, the Adani um, issue or the mines and um, what's happening in Batman because Batman, despite being far away from um, Queensland, has become the, um, the focal point for discussing the Adani mines. Uh, I guess it, it basically is challenging... Labor's uh, policy on the Carmichael mines. So there's, uh, that's heaps of discussions, the range of views on it. And the CFMU National President Tony Ma told The Guardian, actually, on the 15th of February, he says, I see no reason for Labor to toughen its position. Why win uh, Batman and lose in central Queensland? The environment groups have worked themselves up into a passion about it. I don't know why. Adani is just another project and it should be judged on its merits. And um, Labour is in a very tight spot. Uh, And Labour sources have told The Guardian that the internal considerations of um, illegal mechanisms to potentially stop Adani remains ongoing. But the party is also focused on sending a clear message to Queensland and Labour uh, and will produce a regional in- industry policy that blue worker collars can believe in. So there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, toing and froing, and uh, Palashank has, has been uh, very non-committal, although uh, during the elections or before the elections, she firmly was going to veto any funding to the Adani mines. But now they've gone into the swishy, uh, softly, softly approach. Now, there, there, is, there are views where Labour, uh, the, the call on Labour to stand up 
um, for labor values, whatever that means. Uh, so labor values apparently is jobs and making sure the economy can function by some sources. Others would say labor has to look after the people as a whole and have um, the environment as part of that consideration. Um, so at a public meeting in Townsville on the 19th, um, uh, where a local residents protesting against Adani were present, uh, and Adani's supporter was arrested for assaulting a protester. So he was careful not to adopt a position of outright opposition to Adani. Uh, this is shortened, of course. So he told reporters there, um, there is a role for mining in Australia. There is a role for coal in Australia. He echoed um, Ma, who's the um, president of the CFMU, national president, that, um, you know, Adani is just another project. So here you've got um, Labour backsliding on the commitment to stop Adani, which they, which is a promise that was made by Palashank in, in Queensland, as I, as I said before. So all shadow ministers and the CFMU agree that Carmichael mine do, does not make financial sense and use this as a substitute for coming out in opposition for the mine. But they're not going to at the moment. However, Labour is under pressure from its members to clarify its position because it's all mud at the moment. Um, so it's time to, for Labour to make up uh, make its position clear on, on this particular issue. And the Adani mine is not in the national interest and does not have broad community support. And, and digging up low-quality, polluting coal isn't a winning strategy. And, and that's very clear. So this, this thing goes on and on and on. But the link between uh, Labour's view on a policy... And the Greens standing in Batman is very um, apparent. Uh, the Greens are using it and milking it for, for you know, all it's worth, and, and rightly so. Um, but the problem here is that uh, Labour's caught between this um, job creation mantra that's touted around the world, um, and uh, Australia, I mean, and um, also the... Um, call by even farmers who say this is going to affect the water basin, we don't want the mine, and also going to destroy one of the um, world's uh, prestigious um, underwater exhibitions as in the um, Great Barrier Reef. So, and welcome back to Green Life Weekly Radio. We have our second interview online. That's um, Kat Nadell. I hope that I pronounced it properly. Um, Welcome to 3CR, um, Kate, our cat. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's very tempting, that, that cat, Kate, in, in uh, pronunciation. Okay. Um, cat is from Environment Victoria, and we are going to talk about the EPA Power Station License Review. Um, and this year, Daniel Andrews will be setting the emission reductions uh, for the years 2025, 2020, 30, 2025 and 2030. So, Kat, what is the um, group that you represent, which is Environment Victoria? What do they have to say about this uh, period when you can try and influence uh, the decision that Daniel Andrews is going to make? Yeah, well, it's a really important time for climate action in Victoria. Uh, yes, yeah, so as we said, there's two big opportunities this year. The, the first, as you noted, is the emission reduction target. So the government's currently set up a panel to 
um, investigate what those targets should be. And, you know, as a community group representing thousands of members who really care about the environment and the future of our safe climate, we think those targets need to be ambitious, but they also need to be more than targets. Uh, the government needs to be thinking ahead to what policy they actually can be put in place to be immediately drawing down CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions in Victoria. And we think that putting limits on the amount of pollution that our biggest polluters, which are the brown coal burning fire stations, sorry, the, the brown coal burning power stations in, in Victoria are our biggest source of greenhouse gas pollution and putting limits on them is the first big step that, that the government can do. Hmm. So there's there's argument for that. I mean, at the moment, it's it's uh, as per standards that are set. But what is being demanded by many people is a fixed um, amount of CO2 per year would be much more effective. Um, still not quite what we want, but it go, goes a little way towards limiting the pollution, emission of pollution into the air. Um, so the brown coal stations... Um, you know, need to curtail their, their their output at certain times. But the problem we have is they use it to curtail it when it's most wanted by the community, as as they did in in South Australia, and create a huge community cry about how we need you know coal to power consistent supply consistent power to the community. What do you say to that? Well, we say that the energy market in Australia is in a period of rapid transition. The cost of renewable energy, clean renewable energy like wind and solar and battery storage is falling very quickly. And uh, in Victoria, there's also currently a plan to um, bring up the amount of renewable energy that we have to at least 40% by the year 2025. And we think that as that new renewable energy comes in, coal needs to be quickly taken out so that as we see that energy transition, we also see uh, a swift reduction in, in dangerous climate pollution. Hmm. But the, the the other issue that uh, is faced is that majority or just about all the brown coal power stations are privately owned. And this means jobs. This is also um, the other issue is that how would the private um, enterprise respond to it? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of issues there. So the first, with yes, they're privately owned and it can be hard to encourage them to make changes that are in the community's interest. And that's kind of where the EPA and this licence review comes in, which is that if they're going to profit by burning coal to generate power and um, and they are profiting incredibly in Victoria at the moment, then um, they, they should... Um, the, the cost of operating in our state is that they have to to listen to the regulations and uh, of the environmental regulator, which is the EPA, who has the power to constrain how much climate pollution they emit. So that's the first step. The second question is is about about jobs and industry, and that's a really important issue. And so, what we often talk about when we talk about the transition to zero emissions in Victoria is something called a just transition, which means that as we're thinking about the equality of and the rights of future generations and people who are going to live through the climate crisis is that we should also be thinking about the communities who've been relying on coal for generations and, and the jobs that are, um, that, that are at risk. But um, there's actually lots of, lots of things we can do about that. The first step is involving and empowering the community to plan for new, uh, new economic development in those areas. And um, in the Latrobe Valley, where our coal power stations are, 
They're not even the biggest industry in that area. The biggest industry there is health, and there's lots of growing jobs in 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 the health industries in that area. Um, yeah, and many other more sustainable industries that we'll need for the future. And and basically, we need to be supporting the communities and those workers and their families to yeah to prepare for the fact that these power stations are going to close at some point in the future. Okay, so what sort of campaigns are actually going on in relation to um, putting into place all those strategies that you outlined, Ken? Yeah, well, there's a couple. So, and you know, we are just one part of the um, environment and 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 equality movement in Victoria. But a couple of things that we're doing at Environment Victoria. The first one is that we're um, we're calling on the EPA to put limits of, on the CO2 of power stations. So that's because they're going through a power station license review right now, um, which means they're considering things like how should in um, in this modern era power stations be regulated in order to meet community expectations. And we think number one is there should be limits on climate pollution. Uh, so that's a, that's a big campaign that we're running and there's lots of opportunities for people to get involved if they're interested. Um, yeah, I don't know if people can call in and you can give them my contact details. Or, you you, um, you go ahead and do that. That's Victoria's fine. Website. Sorry, you can, you, can, you can do that. Yeah. I'll put it on the <laughs> website it? as well. That would be great. Thank you. Um, so that's one. We're, we're really looking for, for the community to get involved in that because the EPA is, um, is Victoria's environmental um, regulator and... Um, they're accountable to the community, so we really want the community to get involved and, and tell them what they think about the importance of limiting climate pollution. Uh, but there are a couple of other campaigns going on as well. There, in terms of the energy transition, there's a campaign called Repower, which is um, about moving Victoria and the rest of Australia to 100% clean energy by the year 2030 or as soon as possible. And uh, that's being taken up by Environment Victoria, but also by um, community groups and environment groups across the country. And um, finally, there's a lot of groups working in Latrobe Valley and around Victoria on the issue of a just transition, um, many working in collaboration. So we work closely with groups like Trades Hall and local Latrobe Valley groups like Voices of the Valley and Earthworker to make sure that the community's views on how we transition our state to a low emission society um, involves, involves a, like a fair shot for that community. Hmm. And the and the closing of uh, mines as well. That's another campaign, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's a campaign. It's a process. It's a thing that's already happening. When the Hazelwood power station closed, everybody sort of realised how big the job of rehabilitating those mines are, and so the rehabilitation of Hazelwood mine has already begun. Uh, but it's bringing up a lot of questions about what will happen when the other the other two mines in Lontro Valley also stop operating and. Um, what can be done to make those vast expanses of land safe from collapse and fire? Mm. And, and the people themselves, in terms of jobs, there's certainly not a lot of discussion about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, so do the, what do the local people say? Because, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, you can always find alternative um, employment, we can retrain them. Retrain them in what? Because there's, that's been one of the sore points because no one has actually clearly discussed it openly uh, for people to understand. Yes, it is possible to create new jobs and, um, you know, get these people gainfully employed. So, what, what, you know, if you if you know, um, do you know what sort of discussions are taking, taking place? Because that is a yeah. mantra that's constantly used by the, the government and the employers, and it's very annoying to hear that. 
Yeah, I guess it, I guess it is annoying, but I, I mean, it's it's important. It's the livelihood of people in the Latrobe Valley, so we have to take that seriously. I guess um, one thing to say is that it's it's not. I think it's not just about what jobs, but it's also about the question of how and the process of how do you make that transition in a community. And something that some really good process that's been happening is. Um, after the closure of Hazelwood was announced, the government set up something called the Latrobe Valley Transition Authority, and so they're a new government body in the Latrobe Valley whose main job is to is to work is to support workers who have who have stopped working at Hazelwood, but also to be setting up that economic activity and community owned infrastructure to support that community for years to come. And so they're doing a lot of good things. They're running retraining programs for workers. They're supporting businesses to um, create jobs for people who are coming back to the workplace for whatever reason. They're also working on bigger infrastructure projects like the rail line. Um, One interesting story recently was um, a training program for former Hazelwood and power mill workers who um, have been retrained in um, non-emergency um, patient transfer, so driving sort of ambulances and things like that. And um, that's a really decent job in an industry that's growing in Latrobe Valley, which is the health industry. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's a training program and, and jobs that are, that are changing right now as we speak. That sounds fantastic because you never hear this sort of information in any other media. You know, you got to look for it. They say, oh, and, and you get all the negative reports of how jobs haven't been able to be created and, and this gives them the advantage of always hammering away why they should continue to support coal mines and so on. And it's just to get the other side of the picture. Anyway, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, and I think that's something important to remember is that there are a lot of people in Latrobe Valley. It's often the ones who work in the mines or who, who own 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 the mines and power stations that you hear from the most but it's it's a big and it's a diverse community and yeah i really encourage you to, to speak to people from latrobe valley because there there are many who have a you know positive sustainable vision for the future down there sounds fantastic i will we'll certainly pursue that and thank you so much kat and the the organization you represent environment victoria and that is available on the web for people who want to look it up. Um, you want to read out a phone number that you want me to put on the website as well? Uh, maybe people can email me at c.nadel at environmentvictoria.org.au. Uh, yeah, if they're interested in getting involved in campaigns about climate pollution, renewable energy, or a just transition. Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Kat. Great. Thank you. Have okay. a good one. You too. Bye. Welcome back to Green Life Weekly Radio. You heard the man there. Um, do subscribe. The uh, station depends on subscribers to keep uh, itself um, on air. So if you liked that interview, if you enjoyed it, and you, you want to um, continue to support the station, you can always ring in, uh, 94198377, and you can always come into the office in Smith Street. So it's time for the activist calendar, Jacob. Yeah. Uh, so let me start off. Um, I always like to do the ongoing um, campaigns first. And, of course, the SO workers, uh, UGL Mines, um, are still out and people hopefully haven't forgotten about them. They are on their over, over – it's been over 200 days and they're still hanging in there. So please, um, uh, if you want to support them, uh, look up the SO workers on Facebook and all the information is there and you can also uh, donate to support them if you like. 
The other thing that is going on support the Australian paper workers. Workers at Australian Papers in Preston have been out for several weeks now, and they're also looking for support, uh, and that's at 54 Raglan Street, Preston. And this is, of course, another... EBA discussion and the, the the picket lines there from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. So no, yeah, that's right. So please uh, go along, drop in, um, say hello, have a chat to the workers there. Now March 1st, next Thursday to the 3rd of March, the following Saturday, there's a play by Sama Sabawi. It's about asylum seekers before they became asylum seekers. Melbourne Theatre Company. And uh, you can ring them up. It's um, in the, on South Bank. Uh, March the 1st, there's another small um, a, a forum. Small is necessary, sharing living on a shared planet. Uh, Anitra Nelson, author of a new book, Small is Necessary. So it's a, I guess, a book launch with um, Giselle Wilkinson from Sustainable Living Festival at 7 p.m. It's at the International uh, Bookshop at Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Street. And there's a film screening, Mighty Force, a new stop Adani movie at 7.30. It's at... 584 Glen Ferry Road, Hawthorne is hosted by the Stop Adani Kuyong Group. 2nd of March, which is a Friday, uh, rally more public housing, not less, which is today actually. Um, calling on Minister of Housing Martin Foley to put a stop to the Victorian government's current program of preparing to demolish existing units on nine public housing estates. And this is this is a terrible, terrible thing that's happening. And definitely a great need for support in this area is required. Now, it's at 11 a.m., 46 Roos Street, Port Melbourne, organized by Fair Go for Pensioners. Uh, then on the same day, the 2nd of March, a forum, Stop the Welfare Tax. The government's introducing two bills into Parliament designed to dismantle our social security system. And the forum will be addressed by Steve Jolly, the Yarra City Councillor and Victorian Socialist, Lisa Newman from the CPSU, uh, Deputy National President, Sue Bolton, Moulin City Councillor and Socialist Alliance, Father Ma- Bob Maguire at 4pm Trades Hall, uh, again, a corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, and that's on the 2nd of March. This is being organized by the Australian Unemployed Workers. And, uh, Jacob, on your page, it's March the 3rd, the, the following events. Okay, so there'll be uh, a book launch um, information report on Sri Lanka, um, which is a new report that has come out about that is a strong critique of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Sri Lankan position paper. Um, and this will be happening at 3 p.m. at the Durban International Cultural Centre, um, which is at 59A Roseberry Avenue in Preston. There will be um, a community meeting, sale of land at Outlook Drive in Glenroy at 2pm. Um, yeah, it's organised by Friends of Mooney Ponds Creek. About, And there will be a, there's a, a forum. Um, in this week, there will be a lot of International Women's Day events. Um, but there will be a forum on Monday, March the 5th, on feminism at the fringes, um, probably talking about, you know, 
generally featuring kind of diverse voices um, in feminist discourse that you don't hear from generally. And they'll be happening at 6pm at the Victoria University, Flinders Lane campus in the city, um, which will be at room FLB01. Um, there'll be a public meeting witnessing climate change on Tuesday, March the 6th. Um, just search public meeting witnessing climate change and it'll be at the Alfingham Theatre in Collins Street in the city. Um, Wednesday, March the 7th, Feminism in the Pub, Beyond Me Too in the Workplace. Um, and that will be at 6.30pm at the Clyde Hotel, um, 384 Carrigan Street in Carlton, and hosted by We Are Union Women. Um, on Thursday, March the 8th, will be the International Women's Day, March Rally in March, happening at 5.30 at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, there'll be a feminist film night, um, a double screening of Fear Us Women and Woman at War, um, basically documentaries that are about, you know, about the um, exploring the military and ideological struggle waged by a Kurdish woman in Syria and Iraq and the history of the Kurdish women's movement beginning with the um, Kurdish, Kurdistan Workers' Party. And that will be at Level 547 Swanson Street, the Resistance Centre in the city, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. So that'll be at Friday, March the 9th. Um, there'll be a rally for refugees in Bratman, bring them here. Um, the Batman by-election is a chance to build a stronger refugee movement and put um, put you know, put it in the national spotlight and light the Batman by-election. That'll be at the Northcote Town Hall Arts Centre, um, 189 High Street in Northcote, and it's organised by Refugee Action Collective. You did the rest of this page? Yep. Um, the last leg of announcements. There's a film screening um, of, of uh, war, war slash peace. Finnish, Finnish Australian um, documentary about the formation and activist activities of the weather underground movement in the US in the 60s and 70s. It addresses the implications and lessons for today's situation. Accompanying the screening will be the filmmakers of the two main subjects um, of the film, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dawn. Uh, so it's at 6 p.m. at 23 uh, Mayers, M-E-Y-E-R-S place in the city. Uh, this um, Loop Project Space and Bar is the name of the place. 11th of March, uh, another film screening, Stop Adani, the same uh, movie I mentioned before, Mighty Force. And this event is being um, sponsored by the Unitarian Church Social Justice Action Group. Uh, the normal church service finishes at 12. And visitors are welcome to join us for coffee, tea and so on. And the car and car parking is available. So that's 11th of March, Sunday. 13th of March, a forum, Me Too, Women's Liberation. Challenging Patriarchal Structures, How to Fight Misogyny and Sexism. Speaker, uh, speakers are Sarah Hathaway, Union Organizer and Co-Convener of Socialist Alliance in Geelong. And there will be meal at 6.30. Uh, then that's held at 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT, at level 5. Uh, there's a forum on Indonesia, Discontent and Challenge of Radical Politics. Uh, speaker, Max Lane court of activism uh 7 p.m uh it's held by held in the new international workshop trades hall corner of ligon street and victoria street so that's on the 13th of march which is a tuesday and um 
there's a queer film festival between the 15th and the 26th of March, and you can look up the program online. It's it's lots of wonderful things happening there. And the 15th of March, we have a rally, um, save our stations, and it's a, a negotiation. Oh, that rally has been cancelled. Oh, has it? Okay, so that's one down. Yeah, because basically what happened is. Um, the RTBU were able to come to an agree- agreement. agreement. Okay. Now, the next one's on the 20th of March, um, and the forum's Wobblies of the World. It's lessons from the struggles of the past, speakers Barry T. Bergman and Paul D. Anglis, uh, authors of chapters in the recently released edited volume Wobblies of the World, and they will discuss the historical contribution of the international workers of the world. It's at 7 p.m. at the New International Bookshop, Trades Hall, which is on the corner of Victoria Street and Lygon. And let's let's um, um, go on to another announcement before we move on to the last interview uh, for the morning. Um, welcome back to 3CR listeners. And, of course, this is Green Left Weekly Radio. And we have... Um, Ian Hundley on the phone and he's from an organisation called Inner Melbourne Planning Alliance he's also a member of um, a Public Transport Users Association so welcome to 3CR Ian oh, Good morning, it's good to be with you Thank you so much for offering to talk to us and um, we started off trying to discuss a whole lot of things like the Westgate Tunnel mm. but you wanted to talk more broadly about um, that as well as the the public transport versus um, private transport debate and, and, and so on, yeah? Yes, that's true. Um, I mean, I've been involved in a number of campaigns in recent years, uh, both to improve public transport and public transport infrastructure and systems, but also to campaign against uh, particular major roads projects, which in a sense are diametrically opposed to that Ambition, if you like. Mm. So, so what can you tell us about this Westgate Tunnel? Even though it's not specifically what you want to elaborate on, but just give us a, a handle on what's actually happening there. Well, the Westgate Tunnel, I think, started out as the Western Distributor. Um, it was a, a rather more moderate ambition to um, to improve the movement of trucks uh, around the fort. Um, uh, but in more recent days, it it transformed into a, a major bid by Transurban mm. to um, to increase roads capacity, uh, particularly from the western suburbs, um, um, which in a sense was diametrically opposed to um, what really should be happening in Melbourne, which is to increase our capability of moving people uh, by public transport. Um, one of its major impacts indeed will be to uh, put more cars into the inner suburbs of the city of Melbourne and also the CBD itself. Um, I did, along with I think several hundred other people, make submissions to the planning panel that was appointed by the Minister for Planning to examine this project. Um, many of the other submissions did quite properly address um, the issues around uh, transport in the western suburbs. Um, I look particularly at what its potential effect might be on central Melbourne. Um, now, 
central Melbourne has been quite a success story for transport in recent decades. <clears throat> so whilst the population has grown quite significantly and the number of businesses in that area have grown, mm. what's also been happening at that time is that the way people get to the city of Melbourne and the inner suburbs has been changing very favourably as well with more people taking public transport um, yes. or, for, or for shorter trips walking yes. or cycling. That's right. Now what the Westgate Tunnel Project threatens to do um, is to basically unravel all that and put more cars into central Melbourne. Uh, the Melbourne City Council's ambition, I think, is to have 90% of trips by, I think, 2030 made by sustainable means. Um, but uh, this transurban project would threaten to unhinge that altogether. Mm. Um, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. And I was just going to say that um, I I was um, talking to somebody who who also is on 3CR uh, who was interviewing this um, renegade economist, and he, they were stating that um, uh, the number of uh, the the numbers traffic. Listen to these uh, numbers. He said it was um, the. Uh, let me start this again. For one point four percent. Incre- increase in toll roads over the last six months, mm. but the toll revenues were up 9.6%, mm. and the earnings before tax trickery without, um, by only 11.6%, but then the net profits were up a staggering 280%. Mm. So Transurban is doing very nicely with this project, isn't yes. it? And well, it, it, let me just uh, just say one more thing because this morning in the Herald Sun, the uh, you, you may not have seen it yet on the front page in in big bold letters it says two billion boost for roads and rail after Victoria sells its shares of Snowy Hydro scheme uh, and they say that the and this is the cash wonder I was talking to the previous person I was interviewing this is catch cry five thousand construction jobs. And estimated to cost between four point one and three five point three billion dollars, they're just pouring money into roads, aren't they? Uh, pretty much. Um, I mean, it's good to see the Melbourne Metro project being built, uh, which will be completed, I think, by about two thousand and twenty-five, which will increase capacity quite significantly on the um, Pakenham corridor. Um, um, through the city, um, and it may well be, and this was actually raised in the in the um, planning panel inquiry into the Westgate Tunnel, it may well be that uh, the Transurban is sort of anticipating when that project gets up and running as a, a major public transport project, it may cause um, a lot of people who currently take a, a Transurban tollway from the southeastern suburbs to actually get on a train because the train system will be working so much better as a consequence of that project. Um, I mean, the figures you quote about profitability, um, I haven't actually seen, but it doesn't surprise me particularly. Um, the um, uh, the Westgate Tunnel project was basically pretty much a creation of Transurban, and they've clearly had their accountants poring over this uh, and done their forecasts of traffic, um, um, which would see it being a particularly profitable project they wouldn't be doing it otherwise absolutely um, and that's that's uh, that's that's the nature of the game um and the fact
fact that that project was actually developed as I think what they now call a um, a market-led proposal, which is a euphemism for what they used to call um, an unsolicited bid under the public-private partnership. Yes, um, that, that's exercise. horror. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that use of language, <laughs> changed use of language, is, is I find rather bleakly entertaining. Yes, um, it's damaging too. People people are confused about what's going on. It's like yeah. public housing, social housing and community housing. Yes. What's going on here? This this play with words, deliberately confusing people. Well, I think, yeah, it's basically uh, somewhat of an obfuscation. Um, um, the members of the public don't really get to understand what's going on and what's proposed. Um, it ends up in hundreds and perhaps thousands of pages of contract documentation that no one particularly understands. And uh, There's been a particular controversy that you might be aware in relation to the Westgate Tunnel Project is that uh, is a um, substantial amount of the data that purportedly supports uh, and justifies the project hasn't actually been released by the government. But um, I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, transport from those growing western and northern suburbs is that... Um, it's quite often projected by government uh, as a as a need, essential indeed, to actually increase roads capacity from the western suburbs, um, rather than look seriously um, at any alternatives. Um, the alternatives, I think, um, are fairly clear. Uh, when the regional rail link was, was opened in June 2015, which included two stations um, in the city of Wyndham in the west, uh, uh, Wyndham Vale and Tarnate. Um, they, as I understand it, uh, the two now the two busiest stations on that line, which runs all the way from Geelong into Southern Cross. Yep. And uh, what we really need is more railway stations in that area, that growing area. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jacob wants to ask you a question, Ian. Yeah, yes, you're talking. Indeed. You're talking about, um, you know, alternatives, and I kind of wanted to see, you know, can you talk into kind of more details of what do you think this kind of alternative um, alternatives to this sort of road madness is? Well, it's um, yeah. So I think it's to increase capacity on the heavy rail network on the Werribee line, and also on that um, regional rail link line, uh, which really needs to be transformed into part of the. Um, metropolitan network mm. rather than be part of the line that goes all the way to Geelong. If you look at the rolling stock, for example, it's used on that on that line. It's basically diesel rail cars that are basically designed um, to take traffic uh, or passengers on long-haul trips, not on metro trips. Uh, the capacity of those of that rolling stock is much lesser than is the case with uh, the metro rolling stock, um, so that needs to happen. The increase in the route, sorry, the increase in the um, the heavy rail network. But one of the other real standouts in a lot of metropolitan Melbourne, and particularly outer Melbourne, and including uh, the new suburbs in the west, is the really poor standard of bus services. Oh God, yes. Um, they run at sort of twenty or forty minute headways. Mm. Um, even during peak periods mm. during the week. And um, they generally don't connect properly with um, the rail network. So um, people use cars to go for the whole trip because they can't 
particularly connect with the rail trip by any other way. Um, but if you contrast that with, a, for example, the uh, the transport interchange at Box Hill, now the transport interchange at Box Hill is a pretty scruffy affair. It's been there for about 30 years. It needs to be upgraded, but uh, and last time Public Transport Victoria did some any, any survey work on how people actually got to Box Hill Station. I think they found that about a quarter of the people that actually took a train in Box Hill um, actually um, caught a bus to connect. Um, now, the, the, bus system, the bus network into Box Hill is far superior to, I think, anything that operates in western suburbs. Mm. So that's a clear indication of what needs to be done across mm. a lot of Melbourne. Mm. So, um, Ian, if, if listeners wanted to get involved in any of these campaigns, um, any pointers? Well, I, um, there's a campaign that's being auspiced now by Friends of the Earth. Okay. Um, it's called the Sustainable Cities Campaign, and that campaign has actually joined the opposition to the Westgate Tunnel, but it will be campaigning... Um, in that sustainable cities space um, on transport and planning issues. Uh, we'll be taking issue with other major roads projects, including, for example, the North East Link, which you may have heard about, um, which, is a, which is to uh, put another freeway between Greensboro and Bulleen in the eastern suburbs. Uh, we're still counting, but the cost of that apparently is going to be about $16 billion. Yeah. Um, if you can contrast with that, that with how much money that's been has been spent on new buses uh, in this parliament, it's a mere hundred million dollars. Mm. Now, uh, two, third, two thirds of Melbourne actually rely on buses. Yes, particularly the outer and middle, middle suburbs. Yes, and the east, the east-west link usually, isn't it? That going from east-west, the north-south. That's mostly uh, that's uh, that's on the. The coalition's list to do, yes. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's another uh, disaster that's making that's uh, <laughs> going to happen. But certainly in the campaigning space, uh, I'd certainly encourage people to go to the Friends of the Earth um, website. Website. Um, yep. Um, it's called Sustainable under Cities the, under the subheading of Sustainable Cities and sign up there. Uh, that campaign will be um, ramping up to the election. Mm. which is scheduled in November. That's right. And there's an, another election coming up here yes, in Batman on, on, uh, in, a two, in two weeks' time. That's correct, yeah. yes. Okay. Thank you so much, Ian. It's very it's kind pleasure. of you. Um, and we'll keep in touch because this is, going, this is an ongoing issue. Yes, it certainly okay. is. Thank and you. Have a good day. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. And that was um, Ian Hundley. It's a different spelling from all the other uh, names I know. But that was Ian Hanley from the um, uh, Inner Melbourne Planning Alliance. And he's also a member of the Public Transport versus Private Transport. Um, no, Public Transport Users Association. Yeah, Public Sorry. Transport Users Association. Okay. <laughs> I got that wrong. Thanks, Ian. And, of course, let's thank um, Tony Iltis. And uh, and Kat uh, Nail or Nadell, um, and I hope you enjoy the program. And as we as we have repeatedly said throughout the program, please subscribe. We would encourage anyone and everyone to subscribe, and it's easy on the website. And you can always walk into the station. Thank you for listening. And Jacob and Zane will be here next week. Have a good day.